Let's get, we can get started. It's like uh, unruly students. You have to wait a few minutes. Uh, I, I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you here to our 28th Monetary Conference. Um, there's construction going on, but we got the crews to uh, take a day off, which they like, but then they have to work all night. Uh, Cato is expanding. You might have seen the picture upstairs. Uh, we're going to double our space. Uh, we'll have a, a brand new auditorium that will uh, seat a lot more people. And as Ed Crane said, uh, you know, as you get older, the seats seem to get smaller. Uh, so the seats will be a little bit bigger in the new auditorium. Uh, we'll also have a dining facility there uh, for luncheon talks uh, that will seat 250 people. We'll have a rooftop garden uh, and so on. So uh, there's a lot of naming possibilities if you want to see Ed about it. Uh, the, uh... Well, let me just begin by plugging the Cato Journal, which I edit. Uh, we carry a lot of monetary papers in the Cato Journal, and uh, the last year's monetary conference, uh, we had two special issues out of it uh, with a lot of interesting papers. Uh, it's, it's for sale, uh, $8 a copy, which is a good deal, uh, but uh, it's also uh, free online. And uh, we got over a half million hits last year on our website for the Cato Journal. Uh, so I tell my friends that publish in the AER, they ought to publish in the Cato Journal. Uh, so I encourage you to take a look at that. Uh, let me begin with a, a little story. Uh, my wife had to go out of town this week, and, and I've been running this conference now for 28 years, so she, and she used to attend in the early days. Uh, but she left me a note, and she said, well, honey, have a happy monetary conference. And then she said, I'll be praying for you. And what I figure is she must have been reading the financial press. Uh, so, for example, we see QE2 is risky and should be limited in the Financial Times. Martin Feldstein uh, says, although the specific asset prices that are now rising are different from the last time, the possibility of damaging declines when bubbles burst is worryingly similar. Uh, or you could look at the Wall Street Journal, heard on the street, Captain Ben charts a treacherous course. Uh, Jerry Jordan, our keynote speaker, would like that title since he's an avid sailor, uh, as I'll discuss in a second. Uh, and in that article, it said investors in their euphoria may want to pause for thought as the Fed heads further off the map. Uh, and then you read the Financial Times. Uh, Robin Harding had an article on the Jekyll Island meeting, Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, Jekyll, Jekyll Island was the place where the Fed blueprint was laid out 100 years ago in 1910. And actually, it was under the pretense of duck hunting. Uh, I'm not, I don't know whether Dick Cheney attended the reunion, but... Uh, uh, that, at, that, at that meeting, Ben Bernanke uh, said that Milton, said that, uh, yeah, well, the, the celebration uh, a, couple, a couple days ago. He might have been at the first one, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, he said that Milton Friedman would, would agree, he channeled Milton Friedman, said Milton Friedman would agree with uh, QE2, quantitative easing 2. And... Uh, uh, that, that was repeated earlier, or that was said earlier uh, in a column in the Wall Street Journal by David Wessel, who said uh, 
Milton Friedman's logic would lead to QE2. Uh, but that's patently false. Uh, Milton, in an article uh, in the book that Anna Schwartz and I edited uh, from the very first monetary conference uh, called The Search for Stable Money, uh, had a chapter in there, and he argued basically for getting rid of the Federal Reserve as we know it, for freezing the monetary base, which is far from quantitative easing, and basically allowing private currencies to compete with the limited quantity of Federal Reserve notes. Uh, he also argued for getting rid of the dual mandate. He also said that a little deflation wouldn't hurt if it was brought about by increased productivity. In fact, in his essay, The Optimal Quantity of Money, uh, he would allow for a little deflation because it would increase the real purchasing power of money and make it more efficient. So uh, Milton uh, would definitely not agree with quantitative easing. I wish he were here uh, to defend himself. Uh, let me just quote from that article that Milton wrote uh, in, in the search for stable money. Uh, he said, the power to determine the quantity of money is too important, too pervasive to be exercised by a few people, however public-spirited, if there is any feasible alternative. Well, we're going to look at some of those alternatives today, uh, as we've done uh, for many years. Uh, Friedman also said that unless the proper monetary framework is adopted, we should not expect good intentions of Fed officials to secure sound money. Uh, today, our distinguished speakers will discuss the existing, existing uh, monetary framework and possible alternatives, and in particular address the following questions from the uh, four panels that we have. First, is discretionary monetary policy under a pure fiat money regime responsible for the housing and credit bubbles? How would alternative monetary regimes, for example, a gold standard with competing currencies and free banking, deal with bubbles? What lessons can we learn from the housing and credit bubbles? And fourth, how can we prevent future bubbles? Uh, monetary policy has most recently become a tool of fiscal policy with the monetization of the debt. And the Fed has been engaging in credit allocation, holding a lot of toxic assets on their balance sheet. Uh, by holding interest rates at an artificially low level, uh, the Fed's increasing risk-taking. That's one of their purposes. Uh, allowing the government to overconsume and fueling an asset bubble in the bond market. Sort of the same type of trouble we got in the first place. Uh, I believe that uh, Fed Governor uh, Kevin Warsh uh, is correct in saying uh, just recently, quote, given what ails us, additional monetary policy measures are poor substitutes for more powerful pro-growth policies. You teach your basic uh, principles classes that printing more money does not lead to creating more goods and services. If it did, then we ought to take the track of Zimbabwe and just, you know, print all day and night. Uh, that's why Milton was against this dual mandate. He felt that the Fed could only control nominal var variables at best, uh, this, the price level over time or nominal income, uh, not, not real output. Uh, Others are also contributing uh, to the debate over QE2. There was a letter addressed to uh, Ben Bernanke uh, just this week in the Wall Street Journal uh, by a number of economists, and they said that, quote, we disagree with the view that inflation needs to be pushed higher. 
uh, and worry that another round of asset purchases with interest rates still near zero over a year into the recovery will distort financial markets and greatly complicate future Fed efforts to normalize monetary policy. Now, someone who has long warned about the dangers of discretionary monetary policy and the benefits of stable money is Jerry Jordan, today's keynote speaker. He's, the, he's got many titles. It's, he has had an amazing career. I've known Jerry for a long time. And uh, you know, he started out at the St. Louis uh, Fed and eventually became uh, senior vice president and research director. Uh, and St. Louis had by far the best research department in, in the system. Uh, and he ended his career as the president of the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Uh, now, after he retired, semi-retired, he did retire for a couple of years, basically. Uh, as I said, he's an avid sailor, and he lived down in Mexico, and he was sailing in the Sea of Cortez. Uh, but as a friend of mine said who sailed around the world, he said it gets kind of boring out in the water after a while. Uh, so I think uh, Jerry decided to come back and challenge Captain Ben in the QE2. Uh, now, Jerry was also in the private sector. He was chief economist at the First Interstate in Los Angeles and later at uh, Pittsburgh, Nation, uh, Pitts, uh, Pittsburgh National Bank. Uh, he was dean and a professor at the Anderson School of Management in New Mexico. Uh, he was on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. He was also on the uh, Gold Commission. Uh, so it seems like deja vu all over again since uh, Ron Paul may be getting into this act if he becomes the uh, chairman of the uh, sub subcommittee, monetary subcommittee. Uh, he was also uh, a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee, which was started by Carl Bruner. Uh, and uh, Alan Meltzer, and uh, several other people here, and also uh, uh, former Fed officials, and uh, uh, Charles Plosser, who will give the closing talk today, with, uh, were members of the uh, Shadow Open Market Committee. Uh, Carl Bruner, Anna, Anna Schwartz, uh, Mickey Levy, uh, Alan Meltzer, uh, Bill Poole, uh, and others, uh, you know, have long participated in, in this conference as well. Uh, He's also past president of the National Association of Business Economists, and he's a senior fellow at the uh, Fraser Institute. Uh, but as my nephew told me last night, he's probably best known uh, from Dr. Zeus, Jerry Jordan's Jelly Jar. I never heard that one before, but uh, my nephew clued me in on that one. Uh, Jerry holds a PhD in economics from UCLA, uh, where he studied with El Armin Elshian and others. Uh, and he holds honorary doctorates from Denison University and Capital University. Please help me welcome Jerry Jordan. Thank you, Jim, and, and ladies and gentlemen. Glad to be here. And Jim, in, in addition to uh, Dr. Seuss, one of my kids sent to me a YouTube video of uh, Jerry Jordan Talks to God. So you can look it up and... Um, I want to thank Jim and Cato for inviting me. It's good to be back. It's been a while. And so I was delighted earlier this year um, when uh, Manuel and I and others were down in Mexico at a conference and uh, Ian Vesquez came along and said, well, how about coming to Washington for the Cato Monetary Conference? And I said, sure, love to. So appreciate it. Uh, Continuing with the sailing analogy just a little bit, uh, one of the things I learned down there is with modern technology of my GPS, if I follow my GPS, 
I can go right through the middle of islands. Uh, there's a lesson in there someplace. I'm going to work on it. Jim made disparaging remarks about QE2. I like QE2. Uh, if you haven't been there, it's still um, docked in Long Beach, and they have a wonderful breakfast buffet. Um, Jim started with a commercial, so so am I. Um, I came into possession of 16 hours of interviews on VHS tapes, unfortunately, uh, of Friedrich von Hayek after he got the Nobel Prize, uh, starting off with Armin Alcian, and then Jim Buchanan, Robert Bork, uh, actually on foot, a number of others interviewing um, Hayek. And I turned them over to uh, Francisco Marroquin University in Guatemala, and they have now digitized them, and as of sometime this summer, they're on a website. You can find them. Just uh, Google Francisco Marroquin um, and uh, go to the uh, new media part of that. You can figure that out even if you can't get the English button to work and get it in Spanish. And you'll also find a lot of things from Free to Choose and other Friedman interviews and that. But the neat thing about the way they do this is it's indexed on one side. So you can search ahead and you can jump ahead of a different topic or a different period of, um, of, of Hayek's life and remembrances. Um, and it's going to be a great resource to have available to a lot of people. The paper I wrote for this, uh, I really did, um, is just, will be distributed this morning. So you can... Uh, uh, read the paper. I'm not going to read it to you. Uh, and you can see that because I had to get it here early um, and get it to Jim, um, that um, I said some of these things before it appeared this morning in the Washington Post. So we can save a lot of time. Just read George Will's column this morning. And that's a big chunk of uh, what I had to say in, in, in the paper. Uh, I was telling a few folks this morning, it reminded me of working in Washington 30 years ago, and I'd write a memo late at night and it would be in the Washington Post the next morning. Damnedest thing you ever saw. Just a, I don't know how they did that. I'm going to start at the end of the paper with some suggestions or recommendations, things that we might talk about, um, not only today, but in the weeks and the months ahead, such as what George is talking about in his column this morning, which is very well done, better written, making the point better than I could have. Um, one of the things I'm sure we're going to discuss today, uh, others have already written about it and have good approaches, different ideas of how to go about it, and I'm certainly supportive. I'm, I'm sure it'll come up again later today, is what kind of a euthanasia program do we have for the um, GSEs, for Fannie and Freddie? Uh, I don't believe in the whole idea of GSEs, um, and so we need to adopt a euthanasia program for them. Um, but that's not sufficient. That, to me, would be like cutting weeds without getting at the roots. You've got to pull them out. And, of course, we know that the root of the problem is the Community Reinvestment Act. It goes back to the 1970s, along with Humphrey Hawkins. It went back to the 1970s. Um, and it was good intentions gone terribly wrong. And even if we kill off these uh, giant weeds, uh, it's going to shoot, shoot up someplace else if we don't get at those roots and dig them out. And I really don't know whether the idea of where, whether people rent the place they live or own the place they live is any business at all of the federal level of government or any level of government, but certainly not the federal level. It's not in the Constitution anyway. So for people that think that 
it's the business of any level of government. Um, what sense does it make for one level of government to encourage the idea of it's good thing for people to own their houses, own the place they live, and somebody else to be constantly jacking up taxes and other costs of owning houses? That doesn't make any sense at all. Why do we have, at the federal level, a Department of HUD? Um, it's not the sort of thing that I think belongs there. I think it belongs that sort of thing that belongs in the states. The Full Employment Balance Growth Act is a source of great mischief. Um, it takes away from the primary focus. Uh, I mentioned in the paper it contributes to a phenomenon of um, uh, mission creep, which George Wish Will also uses that expression this morning in, in his paper. Um, and he did not have an advanced copy of my paper, so don't think that that's what, what it came from. It wasn't me. Um, but the idea of a Congress mandating that uh, a central bank should maintain low unemployment, whatever that means, and then raises the minimum wage. And what sense does this make? Um, if it's just a matter of legislating good intentions, why doesn't Congress declare that everyone should earn above the average income. Um, maybe Cato should start up a journal of economic hypocrisy. Um, telling a central bank to achieve and maintain financial stability takes away from the primary mission of stable money. And so, in that vein, does something called a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's another mistake of that same type of mission creep, but it's actually even worse than that. They did it because they didn't want Congress to have to appropriate the funds to pay for it. So if reducing reserve bank earnings is, um, which ultimately get turned back over to the Treasury, 100% excess profits tax effectively, if that's a good and clever way to avoid constitutional requirements, of congressional appropriation of funds. Let's put the school lunch programs in the Federal Reserve Banks. Or how about the transportation, TSA, transportation management. Transportation is important to the payment systems. Let's put TSA in the Federal Reserve Banks. See how popular that is. I bet you can think of some of your own silly ideas of how do we avoid appropriating funds constitutionally by having it just reduce Reserve Bank earnings get turned over to the Treasury, a hidden way to tax. I'm not one to defend, um, in the, today's environment, lender of last resort. But if we're going to have a lender of last resort function, then at least let's establish some strict rules for that facility. Um, there are financial inter intermediaries, I believe, that are too big to close. They should be open Monday morning. But they're not too big to fail, to wipe out the equity holders, unsecured creditors, all of the golden parachutes. Um, in fact, uh, bailouts of creditors of both financial and non-financial firms that have access to the safety net, uh, as they now do, I think that the idea of bailouts of, of that should be banned by law with sanctions for violating that. 
what we've seen is that politically motivated taxpayer bailouts to certain creditors undermines rule of law and it contributes to regime uncertainty. The greatest threat of all of the financial nonsense is going on, as we saw in Mexico in 1994 and 1995, is you undermine the rule of law. The banking financial crisis of Mexico did come to an end, but 15 years later, they still have not solved the problems of and restored rule of law that was severely damaged as a result of that financial problem. We can reprivatize banks, we can uh, fix a lot of things in the financial system, but once you damage um, the underlying rule of law in the economic political system, um, it's very hard to restore. We also ought to move in the direction of permitting currency competition. Um, somehow work our way towards the development of the private issuance of media of exchange. And to achieve that end, we're going to have to legislate specific performance. As far as I know, Guatemala is the only country that did that, thanks to uh, Manuel Yao and Francisco Marroquin in 1990. But other countries have not done that. That was the flaw in the Argentine uh, uh, arrangement back in the 90s. They did not legislate specific performance to the extent of the payment of taxes in uh, the dollar. And that uh, undermined the ability to sustain that kind of arrangement that they had cooked up. We should have contracts that are denominated in foreign currencies that are enforceable by law, um, as well as the payments of taxes in an alternative medium. The whole idea of a monopoly money and that aspect of legal tender laws, I think inhibits the innovation and, the, and it's inconsistent with the rights of individuals and businesses to enter freely into legally enforceable contracts. I think as a further step to institutionalizing monetary discipline, we should denationalize all gold stocks. Give it back to the people. We stole it from the people fair and square. Let's give it back to them. And that would, together with specific performance, would at least allow some evolution towards competition of currencies. Okay, now I'm going to turn back to what is in the text of the paper in the ways that I wrote it, the way I organized it. And I've been seeking for some time to change the conversation that we have about money, not to something new, but to something old. John Stuart Mill wrote, there cannot be intrinsically a more insignificant thing in the economy of society than money, except in the character of a contrivance for sparing time and labor. It is a machine for doing quickly and commodiously what would be done, though less quickly and commodiously, without it. And like in many other kinds of machinery, it only exerts a distinct and independent influence of its own when it gets out of order. So I welcome very much the remarks Jim Buchanan made at a Montpelier Society uh, meeting in August of 1990. It's available in the spring 2010 Cato Journal, The Constitutionalization of Money. Jim tells us, quote, the members of the public, all of whom are transactors in money values, must come to trust the value of money as iconically sacrosanct. The whole psychology of money in modern times must become different. 
Amen. So as we continue to debate these issues of asset bubbles and monetary policies associated with them before and after, we need to have in mind what we use as money and what Jim called the multi in this multifaceted discourse on financial reform over the post-2009 years. Buchanan concludes, let us not waste this set of crises by exclusive recourse to jerry-built efforts to patch up the failed monetary anarchy we have witnessed. Strong words. Unfortunately, what we have been seeing over the last couple of years, in my mind, is too much of the conversation has been about the strategies and tactics for the formulation and implementation of discretionary monetary policies and not near enough on the reform of the monetary arrangements that might assure constant monetary yardstick. For that kind of dialogue to be fruitful, any uh, further discussions about reforms after the next crisis, we're going to have to come to agree, uh, together more in some agreement on the objectives of constitutional monetary arrangements. <clears throat> some of the speakers in last year's Cato Monetary Conference uh, addressed that. There's been some things since then, and I think that we need to continue that kind of a discussion. Some of the discussions also, uh, too much of it in my mind, about these bubbles and post-bubble environments, um, have not been about preventing them, but as we have seen, an awful lot of it is about the afterwards. Hayek had taught the only time to fight recession is during the prior expansion, and a lot of our discussions today will be in that spirit, um, I'm sure. But so much of the others are talking about the national and international um, responses, the economic hangover, and how we deal with the post-crisis um, environment. This how to reduce the pain of hangovers recipes implicitly rejects Hayek, and it prescribes instead a greater latitude for fiscal act and monetary activism, policy activism even more discretion left economic policymakers to address the aftermath of these bursting bubbles. The most subversive of these suggestions with regard to monetary policies is that in the future, central banks should debase national currencies at a faster rate than had become the common consensus of the 1990s. So now we have people talking about, well, we've decided that we want to shrink the family paycheck, but we don't think we're shrinking the family paycheck fast enough, and we ought to work a little harder at eroding purchasing power and debasing currencies at a faster rate. What on earth are they talking about? These people have uh, in mind that there's what they call the zero-bound problem. It's quite simply an argument that nominal interest rates incorporate an inflation premium, and if we debase the currency at a sufficiently fast uh, rate, then you'll have nominal interest rates, and so that gives greater latitude, a bigger weapon, for confronting uh, the conditions in post-bubble environments. 
I think that we need to move the dialogue back towards something that makes a little sense and resonates better with the American people. I spent some time in the paper talking about what I considered to be the uh, a faulty um, diagnosis of this um, environment and my interpretation of what was going on in the bubble environment and these misguided uh, prescriptions as to how to deal with it through this sort of thing that they talk about, demand stimulus and all of that, that's just um, missing the point completely. Um, I attribute a lot of what the damage that was done and why it um, was so severe in the United States in particular to the mortgage equity withdrawals, and it has to do with all the things that most of you are familiar with of the, the ninja loans and the non-recourse lending, and we could go on and on with all the component parts of that. But most of the people that talk about these things that I've seen failed to make the very simple point as to why was it so damaging in the United States versus Canada or Australia, who had bigger increases in um, house prices than we did because they're not looking at the other side of the balance sheet. You can have asset bubbles, as we had in the dot-com bubble of the 90s, and more recently other countries had in house prices, without the damage if you don't have the debts associated with what's happening on the asset balance side of the balance sheet. As I've thought about this over the last couple of years, what it really struck me, also as I talked with some people and read some things, is unfortunately in this country you can get a PhD in economics with never having had a single class in accounting. Economists that cannot read a balance sheet or a P&L, and it's, it's quite amazing. Um, and so that leads to misdiagnosis and faulty prescriptions. What we wound up with um, after uh, the period of my home is my ATM and how that came about and the, the household debt side of it, that the, mis these misguided policies to maintain a bubble level of household consumption spending through the transfer of, the, of uh, two people of the proceeds of the issuance of government debt, massive amounts of it. And so we, we've replaced to a large extent, continue to replace household debt with government debt and creating, in that sense, a different form of a bubble. Fiscal policies have become part of the problem. They are not part of the solution. And monetary policies cannot correct the mistakes made by the rest of government. Instead of greater latitude for discretion, we ought to be moving and pump priming and all that sort of thing, we ought to moving, be moving towards um, letting markets uh, start to clear without artificial props and distortions. Ultimately, it's the inherent resiliency of a market economy that is going to get us out of this environment and to restore prosperity, not bubble-nomics, uh, as we have learned um, in the last <coughs> couple of years. However, I worry that the lack of fiscal discipline undermines confidence that policymakers will maintain monetary discipline. I spend some time talking about the unlegislated tax of inflation, why uh, societies have resorted to that over time, why it's actually very tempting to politicians to do that, why we did it in the Johnson administration in the 60s, the tax no one has to vote for, or at least he thought so, um, and also the rather cynical resort to the inflation tax as a way to impose real taxation on people that you promised not to raise their taxes. Um, and also the international dimension 
uh, that people seem to either not understand or willfully ignoring what it does to foreign holders of our currency, of our debt, and imposing a tax without representation onto a whole lot of other people around the world. And I conclude with some remarks about what should be, in my mind, the objectives of future monetary reforms and whether one sides with James Madison or Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had said that no duty is more imperative on a government than the duty it owes the people of furnishing them with a sound and uniform currency. But Madison had said it's a challenge of monetary arrangement in spite of government, saying... It cannot be doubted that a paper currency rigidly limited in its quantity to purposes absolutely necessary may be equal and even superior in value to specie. But experience does not favor reliance on such experiments. Whenever the paper has not been convertible into specie and its quantity is dependent on the policy of government, a depreciation has been produced by an undue increase or an apprehension of it. So I interpret James Buchanan as coming down on the side of Madison, saying the Constitution remains the ultimate sovereign authority rather than the government. Some 15 years earlier, in another paper, also in Cato Journal, Buchanan cautioned us, it is in the monetary responsibility that almost all constitutions have failed, even those that were allegedly motivated originally by classical liberal precepts. Governments throughout history have almost always moved beyond constitutionally authorized limits in their monetary authority. And then I have some comments about fiscal dominance hypothesis and the concerns that um, are evident everywhere. Let me stop so we have just a few minutes still for some questions. Yeah, why don't you just take a few minutes? Shout them out. Yes. Yeah, if you can't hear all the way in the back, I don't know, about uh, Great Depression in Japan. Great Depression, Depression was a monetary contraction after a, a boom of the 20s and a shock. Uh, then they uh, did um, contract the money supply um, in a perverse way, uh, contributed to both the depth and duration of the Depression. There were other things that contributed to it, trade policies, regulatory policies, a number of things that all went into that, but monetary policy was part of the problem, not part of the solution. Japan's situation, I just read that very differently than a lot of people. I don't think that that was uh, a favorable uh, enhancement of the purchasing power of money. Uh, it was a uh, mo largely a demand-driven period of the lost decade. But the, Japan had this unusual problem of uh, the internal economy versus the external-oriented part of the economy. If you looked at domestic prices of all kinds of things in Japan in the 1980s, in our currency terms, the price in yen, but in our currency terms, they were just god-awful ex expensive, you know, $600 for a bottle of scotch, too much for me, um, you know, cantaloupes at $70 and so on. So if you looked at a lot of things and you looked only inside and narrowly at the Japanese economy, would, you would have said, well, uh, they have to devalue their currency. 
well, given the external side of that economy and what was going on with the competitiveness of Sony and Honda and some of the other things, you'd say, no, not devalue. They need to revalue. So the external section, people were pressing them in one direction. Internally, you'd say the other way. Ultimately, they had to have, do one of two things, either devalue the yen or suffer deflation in the yen, meaning falling yen prices, in order, once they opened up to the world economy, once they were going to let in Philippine pineapples and all sorts of other things and more competition. Law of one price still holds. And yet they had so changed the mix of their economy that they couldn't get there. Uh, there were some elements of what went on in Japan in the 80s, uh, late 80s and going into the 90s of what happened with the British in the 1920s uh, with trying to restore the pre-1914 gold parity and the inconsistency of what they wanted to do with the, this current situation that they were facing. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on that answer, but very different. A word, though, about the language that we use in these things. I chose some words in there very deliberately, and I, I just annoy the hell out of the, the left when I, when I do this, when I use words like debase the currency. They chose the language of the debate, and if we allow them to choose the terms that we use to frame the debate and to define those terms, we've already lost most of the battle. And so they choose to use a, an expression, instead of saying rising purchasing power money, ask many people out there, would you like your paycheck to buy more in the future or less? That's easy. But if you label that uh, paycheck buys more, rising purchasing power money, with a D word, all D words are bad. Default, devaluation, uh, um, divorce, <laughs> deficit. Um, and so they call it deflation. And I don't do that because I know what they're doing. It's rising purchasing power money. That's why Mises warned us about the use of inflation, deflation. I talk about that in a little bit in this paper and some other papers I've done. Um, you can't use those words without some ambiguity and maybe miscommunicating. And so he said, don't talk about deflations, in or D. And don't talk about price level. There's no such thing as a price level. And don't talk about um, um, price um, in, in the way the language we use, price stability, uh, because it miscommunicates. So I talk about rising purchasing power of money. And I think in the 90s what we had was a virtuous deflation, to use their word, then that's the way you manifest and distribute the benefits of increased productivity and, and, and efficiency. That's the way a gold standard wor world works. People get richer because the paycheck buys more. And that's how wealth creation is distributed. And we, we lose part of the argument if we get, allow that to be labeled deflation. Other questions? Back there, the mics up there, please. You mentioned the gold standard. I'd be curious to hear uh, your evaluation of France's policy during, or France's policy with respect to their gold standard that contributed in part to the depression. Well, it was an inconsistency between what the the French and the Americans were doing and uh, the the British, all trying to go back to pre World War One gold uh, parities when we had uh, had different experience with inflation during the um, uh, the war and and immediate afterwards. So we were stuck with the they were stuck we were stuck with the situation. Uh, but if we were going to get to the co a common 
parody of a historical point in time, then either we had to, the French, had to have more in, inflation uh, or less deflation, or they had to have greater deflation. And I think that that was only well understood much after the fact as to what the problem was. Meltzer's written a lot about that in, his, in the first volume of his history of the Federal Reserve as one good source of that. I'm sure other people have written about it, too. Yes, Art? Uh, what's your take on Mike, so they can hear in the back. What's your take on the uh, mercantilist policies, policies followed by uh, China uh, in the 90s and in this recent decade in contributing to the uh, bubble and to the monetary difficulties that we've suffered? I don't necessarily believe that they were mercantilist. Um, I think that there was a lot of other things, that one, ways one can characterize the liberalization there, the opening up, the, um, um, uh, the transformation of those societies and those economies from basically subsistence um, farming, um, trying to stay alive, to where they're coming to. And I, I guess I just don't find the word, the, the label mercantilist to describe that useful. And I have strongly, in a couple of places, written about the idea that it was the global imbalances and the excess uh, savings of uh, the Chinese that made us do it um, in the, this last decade in the housing bubble. I think that that is not only wrong economically, but I think it's a wrong thing to assert and to try and hold forth because it leads to a different conclusion as to what we ought to be doing in the way of reforms. Uh, so I, just as I rejected the idea that Japan saving and buying up the world in the 1980s was some problem for the future, I reject that the Chinese saving, and it's an ex-ante and an ex-post con concept, and so we don't know until after the fact see how this all plays out, whether or not the ex-post in fact saved. It depends on how well those uh, investments work out. In the case of uh, Japan, as we know, it didn't work out well at all. They saved like crazy ex-ante and ex-post. They got their head handed to them. They got their clock cleaned in, in the losses they experienced. We don't know about the Chinese yet. So, uh, But I, I just don't like the idea of global imbalances. I try and say to people, and the eyes start to roll immediately, that the balance of payments is always balanced. And then I realized they don't understand double entry bookkeeping, and so I go on to something else. There was another question back up there, if we've got time. Which one? Short questions, and I'll try and give short answers. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how you see the Fed unwinding this uh, accumulation reserves in the system? I mean, they've obviously announced they're going to put in $600 billion perhaps. Uh, they said nothing about how they're going to take it out. Do you have any speculation on that? Uh, I'm going to take up the next session, Jim, if that's okay. No, <laughs> no I, I can't give you a, uh, an, a thing. I mean, there's just too many things that uh, have been said about QE1 that I disagree with, that I've read, I've heard that I can't comment on QE2 uh, without a seeming to agree or with something that I don't ag think don't agree with. And um, it's so far it's been a fiscal action, dis a way to disguise uh, the appropriations process and running it through Congress. You've shifted a trillion dollars worth of default risk and term structure risk onto the taxpayers without running it through Congress uh, by running it into the way they did. It's not a monetary action. It's a fiscal action. Yes, sir. Hi. 
Okay. Um, Sam Baker from Transnational Research. Do you differentiate between uh, good deflation and, and bad deflation? I know you don't like the word deflation, but, um, you know, lower prices uh, in the late 90s, you know, distributes productivity gains. It, it, it's a good thing, you know, late 1800s, good thing. But, you know, what if, you know, in, in, in the modern inflation targeting world, you know, the Fed has systematically eliminated good deflation, basically, and, 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 and basically mandated bad inflation. I'm wondering, is there an argument to be made that deflation, lowering prices can be self-reinforcing and can lead to a, you know, a, a negative bust that we do have to worry about? Well, it depends yeah. on what kind of uh, liabilities, as I said, you get associated with the asset increases. Relative prices have to be allowed to change. In an environment of rapid wealth incre- increases, permanent income hypothesis, wealth is increasing. 30 million people a year are coming off of the farms in China, and they're moving into uh, the market economy, and they're producing things. And in India and a whole lot of other places, um, liberalizing over that last 20-year period. The world was getting richer. We know what the meanings of the world getting richer are. People are not going to want to postpone all of that greater future consumption out there. And they're going to tap the credit markets in order to have available some of those consumption claims now. And that does certain things in the financial markets and what Vixel would have called the natural rate of interest and so on. If you prevent... Um, current output prices from falling as they would in a gold standard world, then asset prices have to rise. Relative prices are going to change, and you can't prevent it. And if that uh, asset price increases is not understood properly, what's doing, if the central bank doesn't know where the natural rate is and how to maintain neutrality in that environment, you're going to have what we ex post will identify as having been a bubble when there's adjustment that takes place. I have a margin call. Excuse me. Um, You done? Okay. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Jerry. Uh, Jerry's paper is available outside. You can pick up a copy. Uh, We're going to start right away uh, with the next panel, so if you'll just stay in your seats, and if the next panel members will come up, we can get started.